You're listening to Inside the Minds Podcast with Dante Marsh and Ryan Hyde, where we talk about sports, life, and whatever the hell else we want to talk about. Today's guest played 16 seasons in the NHL with the Calgary Flames, Quebec Nordiques, Vancouver Canucks, and San Jose Sharks. He's got over 3,000 penalty minutes in 815 career games. Please welcome Tim Hunter. How's it going today, Tim? Doing great, thanks. How are you doing? I'm awesome, thank you. Did you ever have any brush-ups and warm-ups around center ice? Well, once in a while, you, you would try to send a message if there was a previous game where something had gone on and there was a guy that needs to be, you know, and a lot of times you didn't have to fight. You just, you know, basically told the guy, listen, you uh, act up tonight. It's going to be much different than the last game where you got off scot-free, where you took a 10 minutes, 10 minute penalty in the end of the game and got kicked out. So you didn't have to be accountable for your actions. You're going to be accountable from the moment the puck drops until the last whistle so just a little warning there pal and that's how you talk to guys like that and um and i was talked to the same <laughs> you know i just i would just laugh and say bring it on um yeah. nothing nobody intimidated me but you know uh at least you got the warning and, and they they give you fair warning that was coming yeah we had a kid in bantam um for those portal Bernie people out there anybody that knows the name ryan Kiefer. Um, in warmups and bantam, uh, playing against that team, Ryan Kiefer would come over center, hit the blue line with a blazing slap shot and just bury one on our goalie and nobody would stand up to him. So he would just do it. You know, nobody would say, Hey, like Kiefer, this isn't happening tonight. So yeah, we'd just come over and start shooting pucks at our goalie and we just stand there and watch him. So. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's a shame that those things happen that the referees or the league doesn't step in that, uh, and the other team's coach allows it to go on. I think that's very, uh, very classless in minor hockey for another coach to allow a player to do that. Um, yeah. And not to, address, not to address it and say, you know, this is, this is not right. You want to act as a bully, uh, do it when the authorities on the ice, the linesman, the referees, and, and they'll hold you accountable where you're not held accountable and warm up is, is a shame. Yeah. No kidding. Um, what do you remember about the 1979 NHL draft? Well, it was really interested, uh, interesting. Um, my manager in Seattle called me and said, um, you know, Tim, there's some, uh, draft rankings coming out. You're ranked number 14 out of the top 25 underage in Canada. Uh, you're probably going to get drafted here in the, in the draft. Um, they're moving the draft from June to August and they're going to have an underage draft. So you, you want to get yourself an agent to represent yourself. And so I'm like asking for recommendations. I found a, an agency to represent me and they just said, well, you know, we've talked to some teams. There's lots of interest and just hang tight. Mm -hmm. So normally I'd go to work with my dad in the morning and I don't remember the day if it was Thursday or Friday, I can't remember it right now, but I didn't go to work, so I stayed home all day, just waiting for the phone call if I was going to get one. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, in the afternoon, I got a call from David Poyle. And David Poyle said, congratulations, Tim. We draft you to the Atlanta Flames, the 54th pick uh, in the third round of the NHL draft. And confirmed address. We're going to send you a letter inviting you to training camp. And we'll get everything all organized and have you to training camp first week of September. So it's pretty surreal. It was, uh, you know, and it was 
quite amazing because it kind of came out of the blue in a, in a lot of ways. I had a lot of friends that were 18 and 19, especially the 19-year-olds. They are all expecting to be drafted, and none of them got drafted because the teams went with all these underage players. Mm-hmm. And then all those other guys were, were signed as free agents later on and even some good under, under, um, underage players. So, um, you know, short draft, six rounds, uh, not a lot of players taken. It was just a quick thing. And I, I know it was, uh, spurred on a bunch of the legalities of the, uh, the underage movements with, uh, all those baby bulls and everything, those guys that were wanting to play in the NHL at 18. So, uh, it was quite uh, incredible to be drafted. I never expected it. I played one year junior and had a great season. I thought uh, had lots of uh, lots of development, and you know I was one of the toughest guys in the Western Hockey League as an eighteen-year-old. So uh, that really helped a lot. Yeah. So being born in Calgary and being drafted by the Atlanta Flames, how did you feel about playing your first NHL game with your hometown Calgary Flames? Well, it was quite amazing, and you know I you know, been down Atlanta after my last year of junior in, in Seattle and got a, had a knee operation. I was at David Poyle's house. He said, I've got some good news for you. He said, the team is moving to Calgary. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's real good news. Yeah. So moving forward, I knew I'd be, I'd have a chance to play in my hometown. And then in my second year, uh, I got called up uh, just before Christmas, uh, I had this funny conversation. I was talking to Lindsey Carson the other day in Calgary. And he said, yeah, I remember Hunts. you're at the airport with us in Chicago and you're flying into, into Calgary with us. You're on the same flight. And so we we're exchanging stories about that. So going into, I wanted going into Calgary with the flyers in the same plane. I was like, Oh boy, Bobby <laughs> Clark and all these guys. It was, it was, it was a little intimidating, but you know, once the puck dropped, it was, uh, just another hockey game. And here it was, I'd, I'd played my whole life as a defenseman and I played my first game in the NHL as a left winger. So it was foreign territory to me over there. And, uh, I adjusted and got, uh, got used to it pretty quick. And by the uh, third period, I ended up fighting, uh, Glenn Cochran, my first NHL fight. I think I did. Okay. Was there a reason for that change to uh, move you to left wing? Well, um, when they changed the roster from 19 to 20 players, uh, Cliff Fletcher was in Seattle and he came to watch me play. And he said, you know, Tim, he said, you're going to play in the NHL. You have that character and you have that toughness and you have that will. He said, it might, might be at another position. It might be at forward um, because, you know, we're going to need some big, uh, strong forward uh, guys. And, you know, we're going to lose guys like Willie Platt and that along the way. And, and, you know, we have some other young guys like Jim Plinsky and yourself who like to fill in those holes and said, so don't be surprised if one day you're going to play on the wing. So that's kind of how the, the groundwork started. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we had uh, Theo Fleury on last year and we talked to him about the Battle of Alberta. And he was saying basically that the guys were swinging their sticks to hit bone and uh, said it was pretty intense. What do you remember about the Battle of, uh, Battle of Alberta? Well, it was hatred. Um, you know, we hated them. They hated us. They were better than us. And we had to become better uh, than we were to, to compete with them. And that's what drove us. And that's what drove the organization. Cliff did all those maneuvers and moves to get us in a position to compete against them, but it was uh, survival of the fittest. Um, and I talked earlier about the Kindler gentler society and I would never have said a word to another oiler or anything off the ice or been friendly with them. Uh, I actually, I absolutely, we, every player absolutely hated each other. It was just total despise and you were trying to hurt guys. Um, and it's human nature. We did what we, we could get away with. You know, uh, Kevin Lowe talked about um, if there was one guy that really bothered you when you played, who he was, who was he during his Hall of Fame speech? And he talked about me being that <laughs> guy that could get under his skin and 
and he could do nothing about because he couldn't fight me and he couldn't do anything other than accept it and play through it and hope, you know, that Dave Semenko or Marty McSorley or somebody would help, help him out along the line, but he had to play through it. And he found it to be very intimidating and very uh, unsettling, but the champion that he is, he played through it. And, uh, you know, it was like, sometimes you felt you were like spitting spitballs at a battleship. You were getting nowhere, but uh, I guess I got somewhere because he made comments <laughs> like that. What do you think about uh, Wayne Gretzky always hiding behind the net when things got out of hand? Well, Wayne was very, very smart and he knew how to um, minimize the impact of the physical game on himself and, you know, take advantage of if a team wanted to play rough and take penalties, he was going to make sure they scored in the power play to make us uh, decide maybe we shouldn't take as many penalties or the game's going to get out of hand. And Wayne Gretzky would score right to the end and run the score up. He wasn't afraid of doing that. No, definitely not. What are your thoughts <laughs> on uh, running the scores? Well, it, it's, there's, there's respect and there's, there's disrespect and respect is, you know, when another team is just having a bad night and you know, you, you've had some luck and you just don't do it and yeah. you don't, cheer on when you're scoring your 10th and 11th goal or ninth goal or eighth goal or seventh goal. You just kind of forge on. And sometimes you're trying not to, but <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard not to. And, uh, but if you've got a team where you're up three or four goals and they want to try to be physical and, and pound your stars uh, as a deterrent, then you know, you're going to run the score up on, on them if they want to pull, pull that stuff. Yeah. I guess a lot of that comes down to um, probably respect too for the, for your opponent. Um, if you want to run the score, you know, maybe they are having a bad night. Maybe you're like, okay, guys, you know, let's just take this one, mail it in kind of thing. Um, whereas maybe it's a team you absolutely hate. And, you're like, <clears throat> and like you said, maybe they're getting physical too, and you're just going to get a pound and make them pay for it. So. Yeah. Well, you know, here's an example. Um, the year I coached the world juniors in Vancouver, uh, we were beating a team quite heavily and I had a player out on the ice and it was, you know, the score was well over 10 and uh, he was cheating the play to try to score a goal or get a point. Cause he hadn't had a point in that game. And, and I, I, you know, I, I talked about him in the, in the media and maybe I shouldn't have, um, but I felt it was a situation where that was disrespectful um, to his teammates and to the other team to try to cheat the play, to try to get a point in a, in a situation like that. Um, you're up 12, 13, 14 to two or whatever it was. And you're cheating the play to try to add to your personal endeavor. Uh, I felt was very disrespectful for the game his own teammates, Hockey Canada, and the opponent. Yeah. So we have George LaRock coming on the show. Hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we're still trying to schedule a time. Um, and I know from uh, hearing George talk about things, uh, George never liked to fight. George was scared of fighting. Um, what, did you, uh, what did you think of fighting? You know, were you, was there anybody you didn't like to fight? Um, did you enjoy fighting? What's your take on it? Well, I don't know if you ever enjoy it, um, but I was never afraid of anyone or, or ever afraid to fight. Um, I trained very, very hard to be the fittest guy on my team, if not in the whole NHL when I played. And I trained with Willie DeWitt. I trained uh, in the boxing ring, trained with bo boxing uh, coaches. And did all kinds of different things to prepare myself that if I was in a fight that I was not going to lose. Yeah. That's really the, a big difference between a lot of guys. They fight to try to win mm -hmm. and they expose themselves and they forget that if you make one wrong move in a fight, you could end your career and, you know, literally your life if you make a wrong move. And a lot of guys get concussions and get, you know, they're laying on the ice 
uh, out cold or a pool of blood because they made a wrong move during a fight. That was not my modus operandi. I was fighting to not lose, not embarrass myself, embarrass my team, and make sure that whoever I fought knew that he was in a fight and uh, I was uh, quite capable of hurting him if he made a mistake. Yeah, and obviously think twice about fighting Tim Hunter. You bet. So I heard a story about uh, you and Rob Ray in Buffalo in a preseason game. Uh, what happened with that story? Well, you know, that was, that was the fun part of uh, those days, a bit of the Wild West. You know, we were playing Buffalo in Vancouver, and I don't know, we usually don't play a team like Buffalo in the, in the preseason. It's close to home, Calgary, and, uh, San Jose, LA, teams that are Winnipeg don't have to travel too far to play in Vancouver. But for some reason, we're playing Buffalo. And Rob Ray had been around a while. And we, I knew Rob Ray, and I knew what he was all about. And it was late in the uh, period, and he's spouting off and trying to uh, – intimidate Pavel Burry got out there against him one time and cross-checked him then he came to the bench and the benches are very close together in the old Coliseum in Vancouver and he was barking at Pavel and I just looked around the glass and told him to shut up and I said you're only being tough because you know we won't see you till February or March and you're going to get out of here unscathed so he you know give me the shut up you old fart and all this and and I said, well, you know, okay. So the re- lines and referees came over and I kept it going because I knew we were going to get kicked out of the game. It's exactly what I wanted. And they threw us out of the game. <clears throat> and so in the old Coliseum behind the benches was just uh, stand stanchions that held the, the seating up because they moved the seating back. So I quickly went underneath the stands to see where, where he was, if he was coming out, but he was still too busy kind of barking at the referee. So I went down my runway, down the connecting runway and down his runway. <laughs> and he came off when he came off, you come out and it's dark and you come in and there's light. And there I was standing. I says, so how do you like them apples? I was right in front of him. I said, you got nowhere to run and hide now. I said, I don't have to wait till March to get you. So I fought him right there underneath the stands and I was on top of him pounding away. And this big hand reaches over and grabs me on the shoulder. And he says, and he says, fellas, you got to end this. We can't have this here. You're going to get in a lot of trouble. And I look and it's Pat Quinn, (laughs) Pat Quinn had come off the bench because he seen me go and he broke up the fight. And so we broke up the fight and nothing ever happened of it. But I got a, I got a couple of good licks on Rob Ray and sent my message. I didn't have to wait till March. <laughs> That's awesome. Speaking of Pat Quinn, do you have any other Pat Quinn stories for us? Well, my most favorite story about Pat Quinn was um, he's this big imposing guy. And, and I learned this later on when I was coaching with Ron Wilson. Ron Wilson was assistant coach at the time, him and uh, Glenn Hanlon. And so we're in Winnipeg. And we're, we had a really terrible first period. And the old Winnipeg arena, they had these big 45-gallon drums as garbage cans in the dressing room. And so Pat comes in. You know, the team's always in the room first, and Pat followed us in. And, he swats one of those Gatorade jugs, big five-gallon Gatorade jug across the room like it was a Gatorade cup. And we're like, ooh, yeah, big boy's not happy. <laughs> and then he laced into us with all this barrage of useless, lazy, poor hockey, this, that, and the other thing. And then he boots the garbage can. And I'm kind of looking at it, and the garbage can never moved. And then he off he goes. So years later, I'm coaching with Ron Wilson, I'm his assistant. He says, Hans, do you remember that time in Winnipeg when Pat kicked the garbage can? So I'll tell you a story. He says, so Pat kicks the garbage can. And we're kind of standing by the door. And then we go into the coach's room and Pat follows us in. He goes, how is that, guys? 
because it was a bit of an act. He just wanted to rile us up. And Ron says, it was pretty good, but how's your foot, Pat? He goes, Jesus Christ, I think I broke my toe. I kicked that goddamn garbage can. Ron goes, well, it's half full of cement, Pat. <laughs> so Pat, Pat uh, had a means to his madness, I guess you could say. <clears throat> That's awesome. Who were uh, some of the toughest players you fought against? Well, you know, Dave Semenko was very tough, and but he was he was a guy that didn't play by the code. If people talk about a code, there was no code with Dave. He he wanted you to fight if he had to sucker punch you, and if you got your you got a little bit of him, he was going to kick you, knee you, scratch you, gouge you, some way to 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 get even. <clears throat> so Dave was very tough. Marty McSorley was was real tough and. Even my first fight, Glenn Cochran was very tough. Big guys, much bigger than me. But the, the guy that probably was the most, uh, I guess, um, <clears throat> the one fight that I went, I really don't want to fight him again, was Nick Fatio. I'd fought him in New York and Madison Square Gardens my first time in there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I had beaten up Don Maloney early in the game, and I thought, well, I'm going to get out of this game alive here there's like 40 seconds left we score and i hadn't seen nick fatio all night and then bob johnson throws me out for the face off and i'm like okay i go out and over the boards comes nick fatio and i'm going oh darn i thought i was going to get out of here alive nope nick fatio is coming over the boards so we've lined up the face off and nick fatio speared me right in the inside of my leg in that nice tender area just up by your groin and then he gives me the come here pal so we drop the gloves and i'm a little young a little dumb and i step a little too close to him he reaches out to grab me and he grabs a hold of me and he throws a punch he's got he's pulling me and punching at the same time and i'm coming towards him and i duck my head and he hit me right on top of the uh the helmet and he just blew my helmet right off my head. I still haven't found it. I don't know where it went. And I'm like, OMG, if that had ever hit me in the face. So we wrestled to the ground and never really had much of a fight. And I just remember that moment going, that's one powerful man. I had big hands. And when I played uh, later on, Nick played for the Flames. He fought uh, Glenn, uh, um, Greg Cox, Craig Cox in Vancouver one night. Coxie wanted to fight me, but Nick grabs me and he goes, I'll take care of this. I think it was, he hadn't fought yet as a flame, so he wanted to show everyone he could fight. Well, we knew he could fight. So he's fighting, they start the fight and he hits, hits Craig Cox right in the left uh, orbital bone and breaks his orbital bone. And it was just like, like a sledgehammer hitting a pound of flesh and it, crushed his orbital bone and Craig just shaked it off. But at that moment, I thought that would have been my face in Madison square gardens about seven or eight years earlier. And I would thank God it's not me. So I knew the effects and that was just a reminder of the effects of Nick's punch. So I would say by far Nick Fatio. <laughs> just be happy that uh, you had a, a helmet that blew up, right? And not your face. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I was lucky to, to do that. You know, you always try to make your face and your 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 front of your face uh, a small target, so you turn it into a long oval by tilting your head. And I was smart enough to know that, and uh, my helmet took the brunt of it. And thank God. So after Calgary, you played one season with the Quebec Nordiques. What was that season like in Quebec? Well, you know, it was a lot of fun uh, playing with all those young guys: Owen Nolan, Joe Sakic, Matt Sundin. Curtis Lecision, Adam Foote, uh, Mike Ricci, just outstanding. I, the only problem was Quebec was a, they were a real uh, low paying team, low budget team. Uh, Marcel Abu was running the team. I was, my contract with Calgary had expired. They had to qualify me to play in Quebec. And they just offered me the same contract I was playing for the year before because we were going to go to arbitration. But they also offered me a two-week contract. And I said to Pierre Paget, I said, it's like, seriously? He says, well, he said, we'll work things out. And, you know, so I played 
did the, the right thing and played hard and was a good soldier all year. And, you know, Tony twist was there and Tony was a very tough kid and helped him out and helped uh, do my part to lead the guys. And, and it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Ron Hextall, we had Ron Hextall, just amazing athlete guy to be around. So intense, so competitive. And, and being in Quebec was fun. Our family liked it. We immersed right in the community and, um, but they just weren't coming around to pay me. I could never get to arbitration. So I, I went to Pierre and said, you know, you're going to have to do something. Um, you know, I, I want to play three or four more years and, and this is not going to work if you're not going to pay me here. So is there any way you could trade me or put me on waivers or do something so I can, you know, move on here. So he put me on waivers and I signed with Vancouver and Vancouver picked me up and then they signed me. So that was, um, was, you know, a great thing. Uh, for my career playing in Vancouver, man, the fans, the the team, Pat Quinn, that whole atmosphere was just unbelievable. Yeah. Did you have any uh, any issues with the the French language in Quebec? No, not at all. You know, it was it was um, in old Quebec. You know, it's it's tourism, so there's lots of English and lots of uh, people that'll you know help you out. You know, in the rural communities, you know, they're they're not really big on on helping you out they're they're speak their french their french culture and if you try they're kind of look at you like that's not very good um so it's a little different and i understand their culture but um you know some of the the funnest things you know playing in the outdoor rinks in the plains of abraham in the winter with my friends and just going out there as a as a as a guy to play outdoor hockey and the kids are kind of going that looks like the Nordique and they come up. Are you Tim Hunter? <laughs> Fun things like that. And, you know, the snow started in October. It didn't end when we left the end of February and it was still snowing. Uh, just amazing amount of snow there. And uh, that was fun. It was, a, it was a great, uh, a great thing to uh, put my family through and to experience and um, no regrets. So I accidentally got my notes mixed up and we skipped over the, uh, the Stanley cup win in 1989 with the flames, which was your only Stanley cup. Although you played in three and coached in one, uh, take us through that Stanley cup run with the flames in 89. Well, you know, it was not, not unlike the one we went through in Vancouver. Um, you know, we had a great team, um, but we had to get, we had to get going and we had trouble in the first round against Vancouver. They were this uh, ragtag group of guys that uh, weren't going to say take no for an answer. And um, they were just kind of hitting their stride at the right time. We had a real tough time with them. And, but we got through Vancouver and, and it was a big sigh of relief through the whole organization. Um, you know, we had built the team to win a Stanley Cup from our 86, uh, lost to Montreal, and Cliff retooled the team. and added more pieces to win a Stanley cup. And, and that was our goal. And, but getting past Vancouver was tough. But once we got past Vancouver, it was, you know, we had so much confidence. It was really clear sailing. We just knew we were going to win. Uh, it was just a matter of uh, by how much or how many games it was going to take us. And even right into going into Montreal, we were confident we were going to beat them in game six. Um, we were going to fly home with the Stanley cup and, that's what we had as a team. Um, you know, all great teams talk about why you're successful. The number one thing they talk about is the players being close and playing for each other. And Terry Crisp had a great way about molding us into a group that, that cared for each other and we were going to play for each other. And uh, we did. Uh, we were very close. And even to today, uh, I just moved back to Calgary after not living there for 30 years. And there's nine players that played on that Stanley cup team that live in Calgary. And we've got a real tight group. We do a lot in the community for the, for the flames and for the flames alumni. And it's just fun to be part of, but you know, all those years later, uh, you're still connected and it's so true. Uh, when you look across the room and you know, that guy, over, over there is not going to let you down. So you're, there's no way you're going to let him down or the guy beside you. And that's what we had. But we also had the confidence that we were going to win because we had great goaltending. 
We had great defense. We had a great power play. We had great penalty killing. And it was just a matter of us, everyone doing their own collective uh, job. And all these are cliches, I know, but cliches come from great things. And that's, <laughs> that's why you can, you know, when you've lived it, you can talk about it. And uh, it was a very special group on that team. Um, no one had ever won a Stanley Cup before. Uh, so it was, it was kind of rare. John, uh, Cliff Fletcher brought in John Tonelli, a little bit of experience early on to, to, you know, show us the way. And then he was gone and we learned from John Tonelli. Uh, but, uh, and it took everyone. There was guys that played, guys that didn't play, uh, but everyone contributed. And it was, uh, it was a total team effort. I'll never forget uh, Lanny McDonald hoisting the cup. Yeah, it was really special for Lanny. That was going to be his last year. Uh, you know, and there was Hawk and Lube was going to retire. Uh, not everyone knew that. I knew that. I was very close with Luber. And he was going to, he had had enough. He wanted to take his family back home to, to Sweden and little things like that. And, and just, but, you know, um, the, the city of Calgary, being from Calgary and, and knowing, knowing, you know, how hard it is to win, being in, Losing to Montreal in Game Five um, in this '86 Stanley Cup was a big blow, but they were a good team. They had some great players, Hall of Fame players. Um, but on the flip side, in 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 '89, we we were a very confident team. Was there a feeling of revenge against Montreal when you beat them in '89? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. There was, you know, it was funny. And they used to have this thing called the Stanley Cup luncheon, and they don't do it anymore. Um, so they have the Stanley Cup luncheon. It's in Montreal. It's in between game two and three. And so we go. They've got this big luncheon, probably a thousand people, speakers, you know, all this stuff. And they introduced the flames. They introduced us, and they just rattled through. Number two, Almagan is number three, so-and-so, number four, you know, right through the lineup didn't say much about anybody. And then it took, took them about five minutes to introduce us and took it probably 40 minutes to introduce all the, the uh, Montreal Canadians. It was like a pep rally for the Montreal Canadians. You know, you're in Montreal and, you know, and then everything's also in English and, and French. And it was just, it was painful. And we're, we thought it was very arrogant of them, uh, which it was. And, and so little things like that, um, you know, and kept hearing these things, the ghosts of the forum and you're not going to win in Montreal and that we were like, we're going to win in Montreal. We've got a good team. And we did. And the one thing that was very special was how classy the Montreal fans were when we won and they handed the trophy out. They all stood and gave us a standing ovation and clapped for us. Uh, basically for a long time until we took the cup off the ice uh, the the rink didn't empty out they were there and and watched it and that was special that was really really interesting to see um and of course uh um you know to be able to uh, win in montreal the first team and only team to ever do that i was just going to bring that up the uh, yeah the only team to win a hoist a stanley cup in montreal was the 1989 calgary flames which is pretty special. So, all right, let's get into it. The, uh, the 1994 Vancouver Canucks, what were the team expectations heading into the season? Well, definitely to, to be competitive and, and make the playoffs. And, you know, Pat was trying to build a team to, to compete for a Stanley cup. And, you know, we just slowly got better and better and started to, you know, Pat had a different way of, handing the team over to the players to get them to kind of self-police and motivate each other and carry his message. Um, Terry Chris was a little more rudimentary. Pat's was uh, philosophical and deep rooted um, uh, to get the older guys and the players to lead each other and care for each other. And, and it really worked. Um, so we had a special group and even to today, it's a, it's again, we didn't win, but I feel really connected to all those guys, you know, Jeff Cortnell, Trevor Linden, Cliff Ronning, you know, Kirk McLean, 
all, all those players, you know, Dave Babbage, Dana Mersion, you know, just a special group, John McLean and Gino and, you know, um, Sean and Toski, that group that I played with a lot, uh, was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we, we, we built confidence a lot slower than that Calgary team did, you know, beating Calgary was huge. Obviously we had to, you know, they were the team that won the division. We had to get by them, but we were that little train, uh, that could, and we just kind of chugged along and slowly built momentum and, and, uh, you know, Pavel was spectacular. Um, you know, Greg Adams, these guys just, you know, we had a lot of guys that could score and a lot of guys that could beat Serge Mameso, big, tough guy, but Serge could score, uh, you know, these guys that uh, were competitive. And that's what had built a big, tough, mean team. We had some rugged defensemen that could bang bodies, yet we had some real skill back there with uh, Jeff Brown and, Yerke Lume, uh, they could really, really uh, make plays and dangle with the puck. So um, as we went along, we just got better and better. And, you know, uh, Pavel kind of found his way. I remember Pat saying to me before the playoffs, you know, you're going to have to, you know, we're going to run into some teams that are going to bash around Pavel and you're going to have to, you know, help out. And I said, well, Pat, I said, you know, I never play with Pavel. And that's hard. And I'm going to try my best to make guys accountable. And I said, but you know, if Pavel's lined up against Shane Churla, I'm not getting out there against saying Shane Churla. I said, you know, Pat, you got to talk to Pavel and I'll do the same and get Pavel um, to kind of, you know, take care of his own battles now and again and send a bit of a message. And, you know, so <laughs> we're playing Dallas and Shane Churla is all over Pavel and, and out of nowhere, Pavel elbows Shane Churla and knocks him out cold on the ice. And I don't remember if Pavel got two minutes or five minutes, but it was he never got suspension. And poor Shane Churla was out cold. But, you know, he had been bullying uh, Pavel pretty bad. And um, to get by Dallas, we definitely needed Pavel. And he, he took his uh, the game in his own hands and... Uh, I remember Pat coming down. He goes, boy, that sure worked on the bench. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I knew Shane. <clears throat> I had played with Shane and, you know, I was buddies with him. And I was like, holy mackerel. Uh, that was a vicious, you, you, I'm sure you've seen it on YouTube. That's a vicious album you ever seen. And, I have uh, seen it, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Pal Pavel got himself a little bit of room after that. And, uh you know, those are the things that it takes to win, to develop a team, and to get guys to, to compete to win. <clears throat> yeah. I wonder where Pavel learned how to throw an elbow like that, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he had a lot trying to throw at him when he was skating guys uh, by guys 100 miles an hour and dodging elbows. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe it was Gino that showed him because Gino and him were really close and uh, – you know, uh, Gino, uh, he knew how to throw on elbow as well. Yeah. yeah. So talk to us a bit about the moves that Pat Quinn made at the trade deadline in 94. Uh, he added, what was it? Jeff Brown, Jeff Cortnall, Sergio Mameso, uh, and I'm sure there were others. Well, you know, we also got uh, along the line, we got Marty Jelena on waivers and right. Brian Glenn on yeah. waivers and, and, uh, you know, it turned out Brian Glenn was a big acquisition because Dana got hurt. And, you know, I had Brian in Calgary and, you know, Pat was always funny. He's, you know, he never knew anyone's name. He'd say, Hey, Hunts, uh, that big uh, left shot D guy there, the guy you had uh, staying with you in Calgary that had the weight problem. You lost, you lost a bunch of weight living with you. He's on uh, waivers there in uh, Ottawa. And, yeah. He's got another guy there, Jelena. He's on waivers with him too. I said, you mean Brian Glenn? He goes, yeah, yeah, Brian Glenn and Marty Jelen. Yeah, those guys. He says, you think I should pick him up? I said, well, Marty's, I seen him in Edmonton. He was really good. And uh, Glenner, he's the same as Brian, uh, as uh, Dana Mers, a little overweight, but he can play. And he might be a little bit better with the puck than, than Dana. Not sure, but he can play. He's rangy. He's got a good stick. Sure, pick him up. So we pick up Brian Glenn and, he could, 
uh, contributes right at the end. And the other guys, well, you know, Jeff Brown, the pass he made to Pavel on the winning goal in Calgary, just, you know, crossed three lines right at the blue line from the top of his own circle. Phenomenal play. And, and just being on the power play, we needed that, that other, you know, Yerke was really good, but Jeff was just a little better. Plus being a right shot, Yerke was a left shot. So we had two weapons. And, you know, Quartz was fantastic. Jeff Cortnell was, you know, just a guy that could score, could skate, play physical, wasn't intimidated, and was a pain in the ass to play against. And a great guy, super guy, was great in the locker room, funny man, always pulling practical, practical jokes and being that, you know, that fun guy in the room that you need, keeping guys loose, teasing Cliffy Ronning about the way he taped the stick, all kinds of fun <laughs> stuff. So, Great group of guys, and Pat knew what he was doing. And, you know, it was like Cliff. Cliff had a bit of a, uh, a inn in St. Louis of prying players out of, this, out of there. That's what got us over the hump in, in Calgary with Gilmore and uh, the trade we made for Gilmore and Wamsley. And then Pat making the deals with uh, St. Louis to get Cliffy and Mameso and, you know, real, real uh, crafty. Uh, general manager, uh, let alone great coach. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people thought that Toronto would have won the Western Western final. What were your thoughts on that series? Well, you know, they had a good team, but um, we just, we just seemed to, 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 I don't know. We, we, we got underneath their skin and they just couldn't get anything. Kirk McLean was fantastic in that series mm-hmm. and Doug Gilmore was hurt. So Doug Gilmore wasn't hundred percent and uh, he had an ankle problem. And I remember running over, running over him behind the net in Vancouver. And I knew he had this move where he drove wide, spun back and then spun back and came out around that right side. So I went down from the right wing and saw him. I knew he was, he's going to do it. And he comes around the net on his back and with his head down. And I just timed it and ran over him and, I, I heard him worse. I learned later on. And uh, so, you know, they weren't a hundred percent, but uh, you know, you, nobody ever is in the playoffs. No. Uh, I just, you know, I, I think our guys just, just grew and grew and uh, got better as we went along. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the Rangers series, um, obviously losing in game seven <coughs> to the Rangers and Nathan Lafayette's post with six minutes left. Uh, what do you what do you remember about that series? Well, there were so many ex Oilers on that team. It was yeah. like old home day for me, you know, playing against Anderson and SCA and Lowe. And, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, but, you know, they just had a little bit more than we did. Um, they obviously, the travel was a big factor. We, we were, we were beaten up and tired. You know, I think there's a photo of Kirk McLean and Trevor Linden hugging each other and those guys were just exhausted and the rangers they probably traveled about a fifth of what we had to travel they traveled like twenty thousand miles we traveled seventy-five thousand miles yeah you know just to get to the the finals uh all the flying you know toronto dallas you know calgary wasn't so much but dallas and toronto that was a lot and and then going to new york and having to go there a second time for game seven was a lot. So, and we were beaten up as well. Pavel was hurt. Uh, wasn't a hundred percent. So, um, but you know, it was, it was a real thrill to, to, to do it. And, you know, my dad was in, in Montreal in 89. He had just retired at 65. And then I took him for dinner the night before game seven in, uh, 94, and he, it was his 70th birthday. So it was pretty wow. special. Uh, those little things that you remember uh, years ago, but uh, um, just the camaraderie and, and the, the opportunity to play for a great team like the Canucks uh, was a real thrill to play for the Canucks and to play for Pat Quinn. That whole run for me was like a dream. I was, was in grade nine, I think, grade nine to grade 10. And the whole thing just seemed unreal as a Canuck fan. I remember like um, 88, 87, you know, Vancouver, I think lost to, to, to Winnipeg 
or just barely making the playoffs and then, you know, just not making the playoffs. And then you get into 94 and the whole run just seemed like an absolute dream to me. And uh, it's something I'll never forget. So, well, all the games that went to overtime, double overtime and, and the heroes, you know, Greg Adams, Russ Court or Jeff Courtnell, uh, these guys that scored big goals and, you know, Cliffy Ronning, uh, just, and Kirk McLean, just, he was, you know, he was just outstanding. I think, you know, in the end, Mike Drichter was just a little bit better than, than Kirk was, you know, um, Mark Messier was a special player and he really galvanized their team and Trevor the same on our team. And, uh, um, you know, they had a little more experience and <laughs> many more Stanley cup wins than we did in Vancouver. That was for sure. Yeah. So I know you're a big fan of pictures. Um, you just talked about one that I have. I've got one of Kirk McLean and Trevor Linden hugging after game seven. That's autographed and it hangs down in my man cave downstairs. Um, and that's a, another moment that I'll never forget. So that, that one's pretty special. Yeah. You know, it's fun stuff to have memories as you, as you go through, you know, yeah, as a fan or as a, you know, I've got some special things that uh, I keep. On my, I call it my wall of shame, not my man cave. You know, just all the things that you have on your wall, you've collected over the years, and uh, lots of fun stuff, lots of fun memories, and just the team pictures. To, you know, you play with so many guys over your career, and so many teams, guys come and go, and to be able to look at, I have all my team pictures to be able to look at all the all the guys that you played with that you're that coached you assistant coaches you know a lot it's a, a special uh um special thing to have in your life that you can look at all those and and have those memories for sure that would be pretty special tim do you have about another 10 15 minutes with us you bet awesome great so you uh retired as a player after the 1997 season playing in 815 career games what was the decision that led you to retire I had 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 enough. I had, was beaten up uh, pretty good. My I had my I had a back injury um, earlier in the year in San Jose. Went to Washington, flew all day, and then played the next night. And you know, at thirty-seven, you know, I was I was. Uh, it took a little while longer to get going. And early in the game, I ran into a brick wall called Steve Konowalchuk, and <laughs> I just my back locked up and took me about five weeks to recover and get back playing again. And I had signed a contract with San Jose to play, only play 40 games and uh, bonuses to play more than 40, but 40 games for, you know, half the games for half the money I was making in Vancouver, more or less. And so it was a good deal. I got to retire on my own terms and I knew it was my last year and San Jose was a fun place for my family and the son and uh, what have you. So, that was it. And I had told during my stay in Vancouver, Pat Quinn, George McPhee, Ron Wilson, Steve Tambellini, and then again in San Jose, Dean Lombardi and, and Wayne Thomas, um, these guys that I wanted to stay in the game in some capacity, preferably as a coach. And if there was any opportunities, I'd be more than willing to listen. And, you know, I got that opportunity in, in San Jose. They offered me a job to to work with uh, um, Daryl Sutter, Paul Baxter, Roy Sommer as the fourth kind of coach, third assistant. And uh, about two days later, George McPhee called me and offered me a job to be on Ron Wilson's staff with Tim Army and be Ron, myself, and Tim Army as a second assistant and have much more um, responsibility and it was a it was a better opportunity for me as coach, so I made the decision to go to to Washington. But uh, to be able to retire on your own terms, to know this is your last year, and you're you're not going to play again, and it was an easy decision to make because I was just you know at 37, I I played as long as I wanted to, and that's all you can ask if you're a pro athlete. I guess it starts taking a toll on the body too, obviously, right? Like training camps, that kind of stuff. You know, you, you're waking up in the morning and it might not, you know, you're just just not there, right? So 
yeah and your body doesn't react the same as you get older you know i i, I was able to play to 37 because i was such a fit uh, athlete all those years and being able to uh um compete because of my uh because of that 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 physical um conditioning i was able to have that longevity yeah so how did you find the transition from playing to coaching you know it was great because you're three feet from the action uh the the game was fresh in your mind the way the teams were being coached the systems it was all that and and ron wilson was was really great as a as a boss he let me be an entrepreneur in my own position. So I got to try new things, experiment and coach the way I felt um, coaching should be and not the way other coaches coached or the way I, I thought it should be that I could create my own kind of style. And he let me grow and experiment. And, and uh, he said, you know, Hans, being a coach, if you make a mistake, these guys are just hockey players. They won't know you make, made a mistake because they don't know what you're trying to do. And so we'd have a laugh. And uh, it was true. The players were great. They were very uh, understanding. I was a new coach. I coached the defense in Washington. We had lots of older guys and lots of younger guys. So it was fun. I got to learn from the older guys and help uh, teach the younger guys the, the game and, and give them opportunities. And, you know, First year in the NHL as assistant coach, we went to the Stanley Cup Finals. So what's better than that? Yeah, no kidding. I was just going to talk about that too. Playing Detroit, you guys unfortunately lost. But like you said, I mean, what better than that is first year as an assistant coach in the NHL and your 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 team's playing for Stanley Cup. So yeah, great environment. George McPhee was a was the ultimate boss and a great guy to work for. I worked for him a couple of times in Washington and uh, treated us really well. And we had gone through that transition of playing in Landover to moving downtown at the new MCI center and transition from ownership from Abe Poland to Ted Leonsis and, and uh, more, more fun stuff to experience in pro sports and go through those, uh, you know, those new environments and the new way of doing business in the NHL with these new super centers and the, and the sports complexes uh, with the entertainment center and not just a hockey rink. Yeah. So that relationship with uh, Ron Wilson obviously started in Vancouver. Yeah. Ron was uh, assistant coach and, you know, he, he was great because he was always on the ice first with me and working with me and last uh, and then, you know, video and I hang around the, the room. I was always trying to learn. And, you know, Ron was, Ron was a great uh, mentor and teacher and, uh, we had lots of laughs and um, Ron had some great stories, a real funny guy and like, like to listen to his stories. And yeah. And, you know, and so when, when Ron got the job uh, after he was fired in Anaheim with George and um, you know, it was just, a, it was so much fun because those two guys are great guys. They're both really funny. And I got to tag along and had a super, uh, uh, made as well in Tim army, another real bright coaching uh, guy as well. He coaches in the Minnesota organization in their minor league team in Iowa and, uh, super people, uh, made, uh, my five years in Washington, uh, a real uh, treat. Yeah, definitely. So what went into you becoming a coach with team Canada for the world juniors? Well, I, you know, signed on with Moose Jaw and it was my, you know, my first year in Moose Jaw, uh, 214, um, we didn't make the playoffs, but, um, you know, Al Miller was involved with some of the scouting and things with the uh, hockey Canada, and, uh, I think recommended me to the group at the time, uh, Scott Salmon and Ryan Jankowski to possibly coach their, uh, U18 team at the world championships in, in Switzerland. So I more than happily took the job and coached the team and it was a great opportunity did some of my own players there and, and uh, you know, coach some of the, the best juniors in the next four years. Uh, Shabbat and uh, some of these guys were incredible players. Uh, um, so that opportunity kind of paved the way to 
the opportunity for old uh, junior championship um, in 217, uh, applied uh, again and was uh, asked to be assistant coach with Dominic Ducharme's uh, uh, team. And uh, we had a great group again. It was a fantastic opportunity. Losing in a shootout and getting a silver medal was, you know, disappointing. But uh, the hockey cad uh, felt that we we didn't win a gold medal, but we had a gold medal performance, and they asked them back the following year. So, you know, it was it was a great opportunity again. And uh, special guys, Dom Ducharme um, and Joel uh, Bouchard, just real super good hockey guys, and fun to be around when you're coaching. Those teams, four years, U18 uh, and uh, three years, U20, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of planning, a lot of um, behind-the-scenes stuff. And like what you see what just went on with the World Juniors being cancelled. You just look at all the people that had to do all the logistics to get all those teams there, all the volunteers, all, coaches, all the media people, television and then all the teams and players and their families and parents to have it canceled just it just puts an end to everything all of a sudden was just devastating i'm sure for all those people and uh for me to be uh have the opportunity to coach in three of the world junior championships was a thrill of a lifetime it was a great honor to to be part of that to be a head coach and assistant coach to win a gold medal a silver medal and a bronze medal with Hockey Canada um, three or four times was uh, very special. Yeah, that is, uh, that's a big accomplishment for sure. Um, I was a little shocked, I guess, about the, the tournament being canceled this year. Um, you know, you get a couple guys, what was it? One player, I think on the Russians, was it Team USA? And he was had their game canceled. I was a little bit surprised that they ended up canceling the whole tournament with a couple guys, you know, with COVID, but. Well, I, guess- I think in reality, what they look at is, is the, uh, how fast it travels and, you know, they want and say what you will, about the whether it's, it's debilitating or not, it's still people getting sick from the virus. And that's what they wanted to totally avoid because they felt with fasted travels and they've had lots of case studies with just look at the NHL, how fast it goes through hockey teams. You know, I'm in Calgary and I'm the Calgary flames and doing things with the alumni and with the flames, flames TV and stuff. And from day to five days to 30 people having COVID in yeah. the organization. And that's, snap your fingers there's 30 people so they're looking at and going you know if you don't nip this in the bud right now we're gonna have multiple teams with multiple players with the yeah. virus and all these guys come january 4th 5th they have to travel home and this is going to be worse so yeah. i think it was it was the right thing to do uh, um as a fan obviously you don't like to see that but I think by far it's the right thing to do because all these young hockey players, they have to go back to their billet families, to their own families, to their own teams. Um, and you want them to go back healthy and not have to sit and wait in Canada and quarantine and not be able to play with their club teams when they, when they're ready to, when the tournament's over and, and just look at the, you know, Mark masters gets it. They had linesmen and officials get it. Um, and then the, the players on the playing team. So, um, it was going to travel really fast, regardless of, of what happened. Um, you know, but I'm sure in hindsight is always 50, 50. You can look back and go, if, uh, if we could have done this or done that, but obviously it didn't happen. So, you know, it's live and learn. Yeah. I know there's talk of, uh, hopefully playing the rest of the tournament in the summer of, of, you know, the upcoming summer. So. Yeah, and I'm sure they will. They, they've done that. They did that. They found their way around a couple of other tournaments. I know last year at the U18 tournament, they played in Texas. They found a way to, to, to organize, getting some teams in there to play and play that tournament, give those birth year uh, players the opportunity to play in that tournament at the U18. I'm sure they'll give these guys an opportunity, not before the NHL draft or in around it, 
and it'll be a great opportunity for those young hockey players. Yeah. A couple more questions, not too much longer, Tim. Um, assuming that the NHL is able to play a full season this year, and I sure hope so, um, who do you think is going to win the Stanley Cup this year? Boy, that's a great question. And um, it's always always interesting. You know, there's teams that are legitimate, Tampa, Florida. You know, they're, they're, they're the you know, I guess the, the teams in the, in the East, the West, you know, Vegas, you know, uh, you never know with teams like Edmonton, Winnipeg, Calgary, you know, Vancouver slowly coming along. I don't know if their Stanley cup material getting better. They were a lot better than they were when I was into Vancouver earlier in the year and watched them play, they play a much better game. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. There's, there's lots of teams capable for sure. Um, but like anything else, everything has to fall into place. Everything has to go your way. COVID injuries, um, players playing their best at the right time. Um, so the likely candidate, are obviously uh, the easy choices, but there's, you know, Calgary, they just, you know, they just seem to be a team that is hard to, hard to put away. They've gotten a lot of good elements out of their team this year. Good goaltending. The defense have defended well. The team has defended well as a team, and they've gotten enough scoring to win games. So that's a recipe for success, right there. Yeah, for sure. I think if Vancouver can stay on the on the path they're on with uh, Bruce Boudreau coming in, um, you know, if they can creep into the playoffs, maybe they can do some damage as well. So Stanley Cup winner, yeah, you, you, I doubt it, but you know. Well, they, they, they're playing a, a game that's, that's a more conducive to the, the clientele they have on their team. Uh, you know, the personnel was not being, they weren't able to play the type of game they're capable of and they should be playing and now they are. So it's, it's fun to watch the Canucks for sure. And, uh, um, you know, some teams that are slow getting going and they'll come around. Um, and then it's just a matter of, again, with all these situations being healthy at the right time. Are we going to see you coaching again in the NHL, maybe as a, as an assistant or a, well, that would be the only time I coach again, as if I coached in the NHL. Um, I've had lots of opportunities to coach in the junior and American league, but, uh, the NHL would be at, uh, my last year in Moose Jaw is going to be my last year coaching junior hockey. I was going to either try to get back in the NHL or retire and it all worked out fine because of COVID and the state the or the warrior organization was in was perfect timing for me and uh, this is my second winter we're we're only a week away from being in Arizona where we spent last uh, winter so I'm uh, looking forward to that and that's what retirement's all about I'm a big fan so I watch a lot of hockey I was at almost every flame game uh, this season. And then I was lucky enough to get out to Vancouver and get to a Canuck game and watch Canucks uh, Colorado play. So that was, that was a fun uh, endeavor as well. Yeah, that would have been a, would have been a great game to watch. Uh, thanks for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure. It's always fun to talk about hockey and the easiest thing you can talk about is yourself. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Inside the Minds podcast with Dante Marsh and Ryan Hyde. Check out our Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter accounts to see our upcoming show announcements, links to our previous shows, and sound bites. And don't forget to hit that follow button while you're there. Hey, this is Logan Bandy. Hi, this is Zane Frazier. This is Art Jimerson. Chris Rainey. This is Boots Electric, and thank you for joining me on my special guest spot on Inside the Minds podcast, where everybody wants to be if they're smart. Good field position start, play action. Burr's going to load it up, but he's short on the throw. Intercepted. Dante Marsh has his 30th career interception and a good return back into Ottawa territory. Well, the usually strong arm Henry Burris comes up short.